I need to tell you something that may come as shocking news. The Apostle Paul did not write 1 Corinthians 13 for wedding ceremonies. Richard Hayes begins his commentary on these verses by saying, the first task for the preacher is to rescue the text from the quagmire of romantic sentimentality. (laughs) I know you know that. And I'm sure that you have said the same thing to couples planning their weddings. But like a whole lot of what we say to those couples, like please don't do the sand ceremony thing. (laughs) And no, your three-year-old nephew is not going to make it through the ceremony without a meltdown. And true story, if your fifth wedding is presided over by an Elvis impersonator with the best man decked out as Abraham Lincoln complete with top hat, and the maid of honor is dressed as Annie Oakley pointing a shotgun at guests during the speak now or forever hold your peace bit. True story. Maybe you're not taking this marriage all that seriously. (laughs) Like I said, a lot of what we say to prospective brides and grooms falls on absolutely deaf ears. So it's hard to know what to say about love at weddings. We're all for it, of course. (laughs) But it's a challenge not to let it become syrupy or trivial. So I usually end up saying a couple of things. First, that love is what brought the couple here, their love for one another, God's love for us, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then I warn the soon-to-be newlyweds that their wedding day is a terrible barometer for figuring out what love is going to look like. While the passion and the googly eyes and all the feelings of love may have gotten them this far, they need something a whole lot more substantial to get them through the long haul. In other words, I tell them words are easy. Love is hard. Love is about the way we act and the choices we make and the ways we treat one another. Now, you all remember that Paul has not been moved to write this letter so that he can compliment the Corinthian Christians for being such great examples of God's love. Truth be told, he writes them because they have been at each other's throats. The Corinthians are abusing their freedom, refusing to share, scorning their neighbor's spiritual gifts, boasting about their own gifts, seeking recognition for themselves, and jockeying for position in the church. And if you pay attention to the passage, that you see that when Paul talks about love, he starts with two positive things. Love is patient and kind. And then he follows with eight negative things. <laughs> love is not envious, boastful, arrogant, rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, and it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Every single one of those eight negatives reiterates something that Paul has already called the Corinthians out for in the preceding chapters. Everything love is not, Paul says, the Corinthians are. Everything he says love is, they are not. John Calvin says Paul wrote chapter 13 to reprimand the Corinthians so they might recognize their own failings in his descriptions of what love is supposed to be. So imagine yourself back at the wedding ceremony. 
the bride's college roommate or somebody's cousin is reading this scripture and the couple hears about how love is patient and kind and not envious or boastful or rude and they lovingly glance over at one another and silently agree, we'll never be irritable or resentful with one another, will we, Snookums? <laughs> Meanwhile, a dozen pews back, a couple who has been married for 20 years, hears those same verses, and one of them jabs an elbow into the other's ribs and hisses, did you hear that? Frederick Buechner points out that real love in marriage is not a romantic candlelit dinner for two. Real love is when the sink is full of dirty dishes and the bills haven't been paid and it's 2 a.m. and the baby starts crying and somebody has to change a diaper and your spouse has a head cold and you really don't want to get out of bed. Real love in human relationships is not an emotion or a feeling. It is practice and action. And that's why I'm reluctant to use 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings. It's too easy. It's overly simplistic to think that love originates with one person and reaches out to one other person so that love is only ever about two individuals. Because the witness of Scripture is that love comes from God and claims us and, and through us reaches out to others. True love always begins with God and reaches out beyond. According to Paul, love never stops at one other person, no matter how special that person may be. Instead, God's love reaches through the loved one to love this broken world. Last night, I told you that I wanted us to think together this week about some of those preaching moments when the ragged edges come together where God's grace can seep through in unexpected ways. And what is a wedding if not an entire truckload of expectations. <laughs> we have a $72 billion a year industry built around weddings in this country alone, and zero consensus on what constitutes a marriage. And if anyone tells you that there is one biblical view of marriage that has always been true forever and ever, amen, it just means that they haven't done their homework. In my experience, brides especially, are often raised to picture some fairy tale wedding which will undoubtedly be followed by its own happily ever after story. And both families come with their own expectations, which are rarely expressed because the mother of the groom is supposed to wear beige and keep her mouth shut, right? Throw in the expectations of friends on both sides who are simultaneously thrilled and anxious that they might be replaced. And on top of that are the expectations the couple holds about married life, but when they have no idea what they, that will be like because they've never been married to this person before. And then there's the preacher. We are often so conflicted about weddings. Is this a religious ceremony? Or are we just acting at the behest of the county clerk to solemnize a wedding? Talk about ragged edges. And that's where I find this story from John's gospel to be both helpful and hopeful. On the third day, John says, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. On the third day, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
We're reading this backwards so we know that something else happens on the third day. Resurrection happens on the third day. New life happens on the third day. It's no coincidence that John uses those words. He's setting the stage. It's the third day. Something is about to happen. So Jesus is at a wedding. And remember that Fred Craddock says that wedding talk is always kingdom talk. As far as Jesus is concerned, the feast in God's kingdom is a wedding banquet to which all people are invited. You know the story. The wine runs out and Jesus' mother comes to him hoping he can do something about it. There's this testy little exchange between the two of them. But then his mother tells the servants to listen to her boy and do whatever he says. He instructs them to fill these six stone jars with water, and when they pour it out, it's taken to the chief steward, who proclaims it the finest wine and praises the bridegroom for saving the best to last. There are a few things you probably already know about the text, but let me mention them anyway. First, in the ancient world, a wedding did not involve a few hours on a Saturday afternoon. The wedding feast would likely last a week, and the wine would flow freely. It was a huge community event, a real celebration with high expectations of hospitality. Running out of wine didn't just mean that the guests would finish their cake and slip out early. Running out of wine meant the party came to a grinding halt, bone dry. Running out of wine was a disaster. So by producing more wine, what Jesus does is keep the party going, keep things happening, keep people together. You also need to know that these six jars weren't just empty buckets lying around. John makes a point of saying that these are the stone water jars for the Jewish ritual of purification. Leviticus lays out clear instructions for what it means to be ritually clean, what you can touch, what you can't touch, and what you have to do to be made clean if you touch something you're not supposed to. And this is important. According to Leviticus, if you are not clean, you are not welcome to be a part of the community. You are cast out. You are unwanted. You are uninvited. So the purification ritual is all about who's in and who's out. So no surprise that Jesus uses these jars to turn water into wine. The old rules said that these jars, this ritual, was what decided whether you were in or out. The new rules, Jesus' rules, say that what matters is not keeping people out, but drawing people in and opening up the community to include everyone. According to the Talmud, the ritual of purification required only about a cup of water to purify a hundred people. Jesus has well over 150 gallons of water. In other words, more than enough water to purify the entire world. You get it? There's enough for everyone. The water that used to keep people out becomes new wine that welcomes people in. And a wedding should be about drawing people in. If we believe that marriage is a good thing, then it should be a good thing for all people and not just the two who are marrying one another. It should be good news for the entire community. 
In the Presbyterian Church, we believe that marriage is a three-way covenant between God and a couple and their community. So the community ought to have a role in making the marriage better, and that marriage ought to make the community better. Last week, I talked to two friends about their weddings. One happened last summer, one is coming up this fall. In both cases, these are couples whose marriage announcements have not been met with unanimous approval, especially in a conservative place like East Tennessee. So why bother, I asked. Why get married at all, since they were both couples were already living together, and why do a big public ceremony when you could go to the courthouse and accomplish the same thing? And without knowing what the other friend had said, the answers were all but identical. It's about our community, they said. It's about our people, our family and our friends supporting us so that no matter what else happens, no matter how difficult things might get in our marriage, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, we always know how much we are loved. And our people know how much we love them. Boom. Mic drop. That's it right there. So go officiate at that wedding. Let God's love gush out from your words all over that couple and let it pool around their friends and let it seep into all those ragged places. And may it draw them and us together in holy matrimony those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Amen.